passages, Acts 17, verses 16, end of the chapter. Uh, It's not uncommon uh, to hear Christians say these days, so much more difficult to convince people of the claims of Christianity in our day. People are so much more cynical, so much more skeptical about religion. Young people especially are more antagonistic to the gospel than before. It's so hard. Yeah? Familiar? Well, actually, the gospel was born into a culture which was deeply cynical, skeptical about religion. And just as distrustful of Christianity as we uh, feel that society may be today. Uh, In the Greek-speaking world, uh, that great majority part of the Roman Empire, influenced by Greek philosophy, people were leaving the old religions in droves and were going to the philosophies of Stoicism and Epicureanism that we meet in Acts 17. Uh, So we need to touch on these a little. Epicureans believed that the gods, if there were gods, were so removed as to be absolutely irrelevant in practical terms. Uh, The Stoics believed in some kind of of a divinity, but it was really uh, a world soul or a world reason that permeated things. And for both, life was short and death was coming soon. And the Epicurean response was, well, make the most of life. Eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That's simplifying things, but that's pretty much their stance. And the Stoics, on the other hand, believed that it was important to uh, meet pain and suffering with calm, and with, with, with poise. It was every bit as difficult to present the gospel in this kind of of atmosphere, an atmosphere which we can, you can see is not so dissimilar from our own day. And yet the case for Christianity was made and was made so powerfully that the Roman world fell before it. One of the reasons that Luke is writing Acts, and remember Acts is the, like the second installment in his account of Christianity. He gives his gospel, but he also has this as part two. And in part one, uh, he is telling his recipient, the first recipient of the letter, Theophilus, that his reason for writing is that he might be more certain of the things that he has been taught. He wants them to be certain. And so it's not surprising that Luke includes a number of accounts of the case for Christianity being made. So that Luke, that Theophilus and others who will read these letters will be convinced about what they have been taught. And we have a very significant episode here in Athens where the case for Christianity is made powerfully by Paul into a culture that we say is not that different from our own, although superficially it seems to be very different. And so it's important for us to look at what case was made for Christianity. And I want us to do that this morning. I want us to look first of all at how deeply sceptical the age was and how Paul responded to that and then how the people themselves responded to the case that he made. 
So we've got the absence of God, the case for God, and the reaction to God. First of all then, the, the absence of God. <coughs> this is a justifiably very famous incident in the book of Acts. Paul before the philosophers of Athens. Uh, in some ways, Paul is actually filling in time when he is in Athens. Remember, he's, he's waiting for his buddy Silas and Timothy to arrive. And he takes the opportunity to go and see what this city is like. Now, remember, Paul is a highly educated man. This would be a great opportunity. Uh, this is the, the city that's associated with the, the great philosophers like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. Paul knew about these men and he's interested to see the city. Uh, you go to Athens today and it impresses you with its grandeur, even although many of these old buildings that are in ruins, the Parthenon uh, still has a unique grandeur of its own. And in Paul's day, it was a hive of cultural and artistic creativity. It fizzed with uh, debate and the, the interplay of ideas. But what struck Paul more than anything else was the idolatry of the city. While Paul was waiting for them in, in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Athens was literally a forest of idols. One uh, ancient commentator said it was easier to find a god in Athens than it was to find a man. It was just full of idols. There were temples, there were shrines, altars everywhere. Now, before we think to ourselves, well, idols are then, but this is now, idols take different forms and are just as real in our own thinking, or can be, today as then. Uh, what is an idol? An idol is simply anything which takes the place of God, the one true God. An idol is something to which we devote the energy, the passion, the devotion which we ought to give to God. An idol is something which robs God, therefore, of his glory. It robs him of his glory as the king. The king who is under no one's control, but who rules over all. Now, it's quite interesting that in the Old Testament, you read Isaiah, what Isaiah, for example, has to say about idols. The point that the Old Testament makes frequently is that idols depend upon man. Now, at one level, that's quite obvious. They have to be made by workmen. They even have to be propped up. And when people were sacrificing to idols and giving uh, you know, oblations of drink and offering a uh, meal and so on, the thinking was that the, that the gods had to be fed. And so they are thought of as being dependent upon man. Now, when we make idols in our own lives, we are thinking of God's substitutes, which nearly <coughs> always make us feel important and indispensable. Think about it. Think of the, the modern kind of idol, the thing that will take our passion instead of God. People can make good things their idols. They can make their family their idols, right? My family is so important to me. So important, actually, it's pushed God out of his place. 
And at the same time, it makes me feel indispensable. My family need me. Just as the, the literal idol was dependent upon the workman and so on. My idols are things that make me feel indispensable. And so my work may be my, my idol. And I give to the workplace the passion and the devotion that I ought to give to God. And in the same way, I become indispensable to my work idol. I can't go on holiday. My work needs me. I can't retire. I'm indispensable. Paul is going to pick up this later when he makes the point that, that God is not served by human hands. He doesn't need us. Now in Athens, these idols, gods, would have been works of art. They would have been beautifully fashioned. They would have been ornate. Paul didn't go, oh, what lovely works of art. Paul reacted by having an inner turmoil. Uh, We're told that uh, when he was greatly distressed, uh, there's a, a Greek word, paroxino, paroxino. From which we get our English word paroxysm. Paul had a paroxysm. He, had, he was inwardly convulsed at what he saw. It had a deep effect upon him. What caused this inner turmoil? He was seeing the glory that belongs to God being given to things that were made by man's hands. God was being robbed of his glory and it threw Paul into an inner convulsion. Paul was someone who recognized profoundly that God's reason for creating the universe in the first place is that this universe might reflect his glory. See, God is glorious and he shines forth from himself. His being shines like a a radiant light. And he created uh, all things that it might shine back to him. Acknowledge his his supreme worth. For from him and through him and to him are all things, Paul said. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And you were created and I was created to give God glory. That is our purpose in life. And if we're living according to that purpose, we'll be enjoying God. But if we don't give God that glory, then he is being robbed. God is dishonored. And we we are, in effect, rubbishing God when we declare that there are things which are more important than him. And which are therefore more worthy of our time and our money and our effort. And a Christian is someone whose perspective, whose priorities have been turned right around so that God is reinstated as first place. God comes and occupies the throne of our lives. Paul looked at Athens and saw it wasn't so. God was being robbed of his glory and he was convulsed inwardly at what he said. <coughs> One of the great heroes of the, of the church, of the church's missionary task, was Henry Martin. Uh, Henry Martin did brilliant uh, work in Cambridge University and he had all kinds of possibilities opening up to him uh, for life. Uh, Employment, he had a a marriage offer, but he 
declined all of these in order to go out as a missionary to India. Eventually he went to Persia. And when he was in Persia, uh, there was an incident which had a profound effect on him. Uh, he was in the home of a Muslim uh, family and he saw a tapestry in which Christ was depicted as giving homage to Muhammad. And Henry Martin was so distressed by what he saw that he had to uh, remove himself from the room. And he said later, I could not endure existence if Jesus was not glorified. It would be hell to me if he were to be always thus dishonored. And Paul reacted like that in Athens. And Paul's reaction was to bring Jesus into every sphere of life. So he went to the synagogue, to the religious place, and he taught Jesus in the synagogue. And he went to the agora, or the marketplace. It was actually more than a marketplace where you bought and, uh, goods. It was a place where uh, the news of the day was proclaimed, uh, where things were discussed and so on, where po politicians canvassed, people networked. It was at the centre of public life. And in the agora, he engaged <coughs> with people and reasoned concerning Jesus and the resurrection. And thirdly, he entered into debate with some of the wandering philosophers for which Athens was famous. Paul was inwardly distressed that God was robbed of his glory and he was moved by that to seek to give God his glory by proclaiming Jesus in all of life. Not just in the church, but in all of life. Some of these folks that he spoke to in the Agora were scornful. Uh, they were bemused by his talk of Jesus and the resurrection. Uh, some think that they mistook what he was saying. Uh, the word for resurrection is, is anastasis. And they heard Jesus and anastasis and thought that he was referring to two gods. Um, because anastasis can be a, a, a name. And they said he seems to be advocating foreign gods. But they were impressed enough to take God, to take uh, Paul to the Areopagus, which was the council of the city's leaders. And here he was able to present the case for Christ to the intelligentsia of Athens. And of course, the people uh, that he met there in the Areopagus were always glad to hear of new ideas. They just loved to hear the latest thing. And so they were open to Paul speaking about this new theory. Paul has this big chance. How does Paul make the case for Christ before this august band of earnest men in the Areopagus? Paul, first of all, makes the case for Christ by declaring that we cannot escape knowing God. We cannot escape knowing God. There is a knowledge of God all around us and also within us. He speaks of this inward knowledge, first of all. Paul speaks of an uneasy contradiction that lies right in the heart of every unbeliever. In 
the heart of every unbeliever, there is a struggle going on. A struggle that arises from our guilty knowledge of God. We know God, but we don't accept him. And therefore, there's, there's a contradiction going on inside. Now, Paul, Paul kind of tries to illustrate this, the contradiction that is going on in every unbeliever's life. By pointing out the fact that he had come across an image that was dedicated to the unknown God. You see, in the midst of all the gods that were there, and some folks reckon that there were maybe 30,000, there was a gnawing fear that they had actually missed the God that mattered. And so they set up an image to the unknown God and they gave reverence, they gave homage to this unknown God. Paul says, now what you worship as an unknown God, I am going to proclaim. <coughs> this is where Paul starts with these skeptics. This is where we start also with modern day skeptics. We say to the modern day unbeliever, there's a huge contradiction in your life. You deny God with your mouth and with your mind. But you know you actually live as though he's there. You know him and don't know him. You unknowingly honour him. How does that work out? Well, think of a couple of areas. Think of our sense of morality. Our sense of what's right and wrong. Uh, 21st century unbelievers, in, in the West at least, live by uh, the framework of evolution. And seculars, secularists of, of all shades uh, believe that this is the, 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 the big explanation of life. And of course evolution teaches that the strong trample the weak and become stronger. And this is actually in the long run a good thing because it's the way that we achieve improvements in health and intelligence. And yet, we condemn people who actually follow through that principle. We condemn Hitler for his attitude in Germany when he was trying to purge the Aryan race of, of the, the elements that he thought were diluting it or corrupting <coughs> it. But where does the right to condemn an action like that come from? comes from a sense of morality that is outside of us, which says, whatever evolution says about this, it is wrong and unacceptable. And so people tend to believe that, that uh, these human rights are like a brute fact. You don't need a majority of people to acknowledge them. We respect human rights because human rights command our respect. But why should that be if there is no God to give us a standard of what is right and wrong? If you believe in human rights, it makes much more sense that God exists than he does not exist. And so when people speak up for the dignity and worth of human beings, they unknowingly honor God. Think of one of the characteristics of our day, which is that 
People deny it's ever right to judge people. You know, you mustn't judge. It's the one thing you must not do. Uh, people believe that it's up to every person to have their own moral code and live by it. It's wrong to judge someone else. That would be imposing your own morality, your own standards on someone else. Whoever lives by that rule? There are many points at which even the most hard-bitten atheist acknowledges that there are things that must be condemned regardless of whether someone maintains they are right or wrong. When the atheist condemns the child abuser because he, the atheist, acknowledges a higher standard than the one the abuser has which justifies what he's doing, what's going on? Not knowing God, he knows him. Unknowingly, he honors God. There's this contradiction going on inside. And it's because we have a sense of the divine. Paul also points to the, the voice that speaks to us outside ourselves. There's a voice speaking to us inside, but there's also a voice speaking to us outside. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. The world around us, this beautiful, this complex, this staggeringly awesome world is a testimony to God. It fills us with awe because it reflects its maker. It's said that uh, during the French Revolution, the radicals, uh, the revolutionary radicals claimed that they would pull down every steeple from every church and rid themselves of the superstition of the Christians. And the Christians replied to this, yes, but you cannot rip the stars from the night sky. You see, far more than any steeple, uh, God has <coughs> made witness to himself by what he has made. And Paul's saying to these culture, these elite pagans, who know nothing of Jesus, who knew nothing of the Old Testament, who knew nothing about Abraham or Moses or David or the story of redemption. He's saying that there is within you, uh, there's a communal memory that goes all the way back to Eden. There is a voice within and there is a testimony outside. The very dignity of humankind speaks to our consciences. We know that we're not simply clothed apes. The fact of man, the unity of the human race, his suitability to the places where God has set him, they all speak to us of the God who is there. So that's the first point that Paul makes when he's making the case for Christianity. God has spoken and we're surrounded by his revelation. But the second point he makes is this. Not only are we surrounded by this revelation, but it gets through to us. It gets through to us. And to make his point, he quotes from two of their poets, from two of the Greek poets, Aratus and Epimenides. In him we live and move and have our being, and we are indeed his offspring. Now, these men weren't Christians. Paul's not intending to uh, say that they were making Christian statements. But what he is saying is that by God's grace, these men spoke better than they knew. There is, in fact, a God who sustains us. 
He doesn't depend on us, but we depend on him. It's all the other way around. And because we are, in a sense, his offspring, we have this great dignity. We have the sense of being above the animal kingdom, of being transcendent, of having some uh, relationship with a God who has made us. It gets through. People do get it. There's an interesting anecdote about uh, the novelist Kingsley Amos, uh, who was uh, an atheist. And he was speaking once to the Russian poet Yevtushenko in 1962. And Yevtushenko asked Amos, are you an atheist? And Amos replied, yes, but it's more than that. I actually hate him. I actually hate him. The one I purport not to believe and I hate. You see, it had got through. It had got through to him. And within every soul, there are these uh, rumors from a far-off country. These intimations of immortality. (coughs) We know there is a God who is there. And so, Paul can say, thirdly, That this knowledge that's all around us and that does get through to us means that we are accountable to God and we will be judged by him. Having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, a lot of what Paul has been saying up to this point has been uh, to try and create common ground, to try and create a point of contact, a rapport with the people he's speaking to. That's why he's quoting their poets. He's establishing the things that they, they really know. Now, what he says is so counter-cultural. He's telling them who live in this ocean of gods, this forest of gods, there is one man who will judge the earth. You will be accountable to him. There is only one way of salvation. It's also countercultural because he speaks of the resurrection of Jesus being the proof of that. Now, in Greek thought, the very idea of resurrection was abhorrent because they, they valued the, the, the non-physical part of life. But they had no, no concept of a bodily resurrection. The Epicureans and the Stoics, to, to some degree, taught that the best thing in life in order to prepare for death is simply this, to face up to it, to realize It's a fact and a reality, and after that, nothing. So, to speak about the resurrection is is so counter-cultural. Now, actually, this is one of the the reasons why the resurrection remains one of the, the great proof for Christianity. Many people uh, in the 20th and 21st century uh, who oppose Christianity of trying to say, well, the early Christians were simply 
engaging in a bit of wishful thinking. They wanted to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead, and so they did believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. But the fact is that there was no expectation of this kind of resurrection happening. Uh, for those who were in a, a Greek mindset, the resurrection was something you didn't want to happen. The body was not important. They had no concept of resurrection. And if you were a Jew, you believed in resurrection. But it involved everybody at the same time. Not one man rising before the rest. It was absurd. It was, it was completely counterintuitive to teach that one man, Jesus, had been raised from the dead. And yet, this is what the apostles preached. God has given proof by raising the man, Jesus, of Nazareth from the dead. It's the brute fact. And Paul says there were literally hundreds of witnesses. And there was no corpse for his enemies to produce. And there remain no bones for people to produce to this day. And so the resurrection is the foundation of the Christian faith. If the resurrection is true, then all of your other questions... Well, they find their own place. They can get filed under the category of matters of other importance. But if the resurrection is true, then everything else makes sense. The miracles of Jesus, his atoning death, his coming again as judge, they are not only possible, but they must be true if the resurrection is true. And so he preached Jesus and his resurrection and his coming again as judge. Now what was the response to this? Well, the response is predictable. Some mocked Paul. They sneered at the idea of resurrection and others wanted to hear more. And as a result of Paul's reasoning and his proclamation, a few became Christians, including a man from the Areopagus, from this council, a man called Dionysius and a woman called uh, Damaris, and some others. Now think what's happening here. These highly educated elite people in Athos, in Athens, have had a revolution in their thinking. The God they longed for, the one they unknowingly honored and unknowingly knew, has been revealed to them in the face of Jesus Christ. And the wonder that gripped them and it still grips us is this. The God who does not need you nor me to serve him has served us. Jesus came down to give himself for our sins. His hands that washed the feet of his disciples bore the nails that held him to the cross of Calvary. The king of all things became a servant that we might be brought into his family. How wonderful. Jesus does not need you, but you need Jesus. How will you respond to that? 
Surely, the only response that we can make is to fall at his feet with gratitude, to believe in him, to take him at his word, to receive what he has done for us, to make him our Savior and our Lord, and to find true joy by living for him from this day onward. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you that you are not only the God who is there, but the God who has spoken. We thank you that your final word to us is in Jesus, and that he has come as the one who is the way and the truth and the life. We thank you that there is no other uh, salvation uh, apart from the one found in him. Lord, we pray that uh, we would be so thrilled by this message and by the the, the power of the gospel, that we will have confidence to share it with a, a generation, a culture that is as sceptical and as resistant as the one into which the gospel was first proclaimed. And Father, if we have to receive yet Jesus, Lord, grant that we may acknowledge that we need him, need him more than we need anything else, and that we would receive him with gladness and with joy. We ask in his precious name. Amen.